Would you open your Bibles to Mark 10 and find verse 32, please? Mark 10, 32. This is actually just prior to what we formally describe as the triumphal entry, but it certainly is the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem, and I think you'll see that very quickly as we begin to read. Mark 10, 32, you follow along, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Father, would you give us faith to believe all that is recorded of our Savior, the King, and open the eyes of our hearts that we may see him as he is, not as we imagine him to be or might even desire him to be. Give us ears to hear his authoritative words, lest we reshape them or recast them into our own imagination and our own misunderstanding. And give us hearts that yield to this King in every way, that submit our wills to Him, that learn to follow as this miraculously healed beggar followed Him, that learn to serve and give our lives even as He has served us and given His life as a ransom for our salvation. Spirit of God, would you descend again, meet us where we are, but don't leave us where we are or as we are, but grow us and change us. Transform us by your powerful movement in our souls and conform us to the perfect one, to Jesus himself, until there is nothing left of us and we are only like Jesus. These things we pray for your great glory, for the honor and joy of our King, and for the blessing of this assembly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look at verse 52. They're on the road. This is the road to Jerusalem. It's no surprise if you have been reading through the Gospel of Mark, we're actually coming to a moment where for the third time Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going, to be, uh, I, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise from the grave. But here, as the previous two times, the disciples aren't tracking with all that that means. They're, they're totally enamored with the potential for fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that tell us the kingdom of David, the greatest king in Israel until Christ himself appeared, they're, they're excited to see those Old Testament prophecies fulfilled that the kingdom will be restored. Israel will, will return to power. The Romans will be kicked out of the land. All the injustice and all the religious oppression itself will be changed in a moment. And the disciples fail to hear and understand the sad proof of their spiritual density, if I can put it that way, is the request that James and John make of Jesus in the following verses. Look at verses 35 and 36 with me one more time because it's a reminder that not only James and John don't fully understand what is about to transpire, but it's a reminder that we don't know or understand Jesus as well as we would like to think we do, certainly not as well as we should. And it also serves as an incentive to press not just deeper into the heart and truth of Christ himself, but to do so humbly and carefully. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? I wonder how you might form your request or answer that question that question of Jesus were to appear to you today and say, what do you want me to do for you? I think the way we answer that question reveals a lot about our hearts. It certainly does for James and John. 
All through the Gospels, individuals and groups come to Jesus with their requests, and they often are bringing preconceived ideas uh, and notions about who he is and what he is present on earth for, and so do we. The disciples' answer shows what kind of king they believe Jesus to be. And the words and work of Jesus show to the disciples what kind of king he truly is. And there is a gentle but firm, a gracious and loving corrective here that unfolds. Now let's look a little more deeply at the request of the two. Here it is, verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now on the surface, that, that seems like a, an okay request, doesn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want to be near Jesus? But why would they ask this? Well, again, despite the fact that Jesus has told the disciples that they are headed to Jerusalem where he will die and rise again on the third day, they firmly believe he's headed to Jerusalem to claim David's throne and then to establish his kingdom. And doesn't it make sense that these are the 12 guys who followed him for three years and he sent out on short-term missions and he's delegated his divine power to them where they too are able to heal the lame and cast out demons and proclaim the good news on his behalf? Why wouldn't this be a legitimate request for them to make? But look at verse 38. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And then they say, we are able. And that's where we kind of smile to ourselves and say, what a delusional reply. My grandmother, my grandma Cheatham, a good English name, although she would tell you I'm Irish by birth. She was a Fulton by birth. She loved to tell the story of a lady who came through the wedding reception line the day my mom and dad were married. And the lady, after congratulating my newly married parents, stopped and said to my grandmother, they're just as happy as if they had good sense. (laughs) And that's true of most newlyweds, right? It's great to be happy, but, you know, clueless, right? That's kind of what this lady was saying. And my grandmother told that story, you know, until the day she wasn't able to tell stories. Well, these disciples are kind of senseless in another way. Like, they have no clue what's coming. They are so enamored with the Jesus that they have seen and understood and limited even by their understanding of of him at this point. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Look at verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is acknowledging that for these disciples that he loves so dearly, there is a future glory coming, but they don't understand the pathway to that glory. We were singing of that earlier. He saw the joy that was on the other side of the cross, and because of that joy, he despised the shame of the cross, but he did not bypass the cross. And so when he speaks of the cup that he will drink and the baptism with which he will be baptized, it's nothing less than the cup of God's wrath that he must drink to the very bottom by week's end. And when he speaks of the baptism he's about to undergo, it is a baptism of suffering, of fire, if you will. And the great tragedy is not that these disciples overestimate their own ability and commitment to Jesus, although they do. And so do we. But that they underestimate the glory and the value 
of the cup and baptism Jesus is about to assume for them. In many ways, their request reflects something that, that kind of resides in all of our hearts. We, we love Jesus as the miracle worker, right? We love Jesus as the one who possesses all power. But we sometimes treat Jesus as make-a-wish Jesus. And does it strike you as ironic that he's asking them, what do you want me to do for you? And the way this story's unf- this, the story unfolds, it, the reverse ought to be the case. Now, the response of the 10 is telling. It, it reveals more of what's in the hearts uh, of these 12 disciples, not just James and John, but all 12. Look at verse 41. When the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're actually angry. But the, the terminology here is that they're angry over the perceived injustice that they have suffered. They're like little children who are arguing. You know, parents, you do a favor for one child, what do all the other children think? Well, fairness and equity is we all get a favor. Well, that's actually not fairness, that's grace. But here they're offended. Hey, what, what right do you guys have to ask for those two seats? And if Jesus gives you the seats, that's not fair to the rest of us. And Oh, wow. Really? I love the realism of the Gospels. This is part of the reason that I'm persuaded. Like, th- this is not just the myth uh, and, and you know, make-believe stories of a, a religious group a few hundred years ago. I mean, this is just, these ought to be heroes, but they're so flawed. This is the beginning of Holy Week. I mean, we're, we're less than seven days away from the cross, and they're fighting and, and suffering and injustice because you two guys got to Jesus before we could. Ah. Isn't it a marvel that Jesus doesn't just say, you know, I formed you guys out of the dust. Return to dust right now. (laughs) What patience, what love, what a king. You know, I think in this indignation, there merges both a fear and, and pride. And that fear and pride expressed in this indignation also reveal that they too, like James and John, do not understand what Jesus has stated clearly to this point, they are, they are blind to the, to the awful mission that Jesus is on. What's the king's remedy? Look at verse 42. He called to them and said to them. He calls a, a time out, if you will. They're on the road to Jerusalem, but this is a teachable moment. Those of you who are teachers, you know, that, that's something that you learned you know, from your earliest education courses. Be alert to teachable moments. And Jesus never missed one. So he calls the 12 to him. Don't you love that? And he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Man, he's just cutting right to the heart. And he begins with what is typical. This is normal. This is what you would expect to find as you enter the the world you live in. But look at the terminology here. Those who are considered rulers rulers. It's an interesting choice of terms. The question is, who considers them to be rulers? Well, what's implied here is that actually these are people who consider themselves to be rulers. Now, maybe more than that, but, it, but if you dug in a little bit and looked at the terminology that Jesus is using, you would recognize that, that he's almost poking fun at these leaders that he puts forward as an example right now. These are those who seem to be something 
But what's implied? Mm, they're, they're not all that they think they are. Those who are considered rulers, here's the first characterization, they lord it over them. That is, they exercise control. Why? Because being in control makes them feel good. Makes them feel like they got a place in the world, like they got value, like they have power, so they exercise control. Second terminology, exercise authority over them. Well, they actually rule. They dictate plans and purposes and initiatives and mission and all kinds of things. They exercise authority. There, at one author writes, there's biting irony in the reference to those who give the illusion of, role, of ruling but simply exploit the people over whom they exercise dominion. And in their struggle for rank and precedence and the desire to exercise authority for their own advantage, the disciples were actually imitating those whom they undoubtedly despised. Isn't that always one of the ironies that runs through this? We, we often despise in other people what we despise in ourselves. You see that at a national level, politically. I'm persuaded that one reason we, we carry a certain amount of despising in our hearts for some of the primary political leaders and, and see all their faults is because they are a mirror that God has held up before us. As a nation, we are proud and immoral and conniving and manipulative and Jesus is speaking very specifically to his disciples and confronting by this instruction what's in their hearts. Look at verse 43. But, in contrast, it shall not be so among you. And I think he's just made it clear. It is this way right now, but it must not be. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And that's the same term translated in other New Testament letters as deacon. I said before how thankful I am for the deacons who serve here. Some of you have had that close and personal service because you've been in an hour or a moment of need and they've come alongside you and they've assisted you with some finances or some physical care or something. That, that's, what, that's what deacons are called of God to do. They're, they are the consummate servants and they should give us little glimpses of Christ himself. Well, Jesus is turning to his disciples and saying, you wanna be great? Learn to serve and then the second term he uses when he goes on to say, not only you must be a servant, he says in verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That was offensive then, and it's almost offensive now. I mean, who, who aspires with a career path to be a household slave? I, I don't think the University of Utah or UVU or Slick offers a major in that. I'm gonna spend four years studying how to be a slave. And, and this is not the type of slave that would be sold as a you know, property of somebody else. That, that is a slavery that is offensive. This is a household servant who, who does the dirtiest and, and the most uncomfortable tasks so that everybody else in the house can get on with life or be comfortable. And Jesus is saying, you want to be great? Learn to serve and become a household slave. And then he says, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, and if anybody ever had the right to be served, it's the King of glory, isn't it? No, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pause to note with me that, first of all, he says the Son of Man came. Now, the Son of Man is not a reference to his humanity, although he is. 
The son of man is a very special title that appears in Daniel's prophecy. So hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, God gave Daniel this vision of of the glorified Christ. And the title that appears in Daniel 9 is the son of man. And he ascends heaven's throne and receives from uh, the eternal God all authority all dominion, all power, it's all given to him. So the son of man is a title of power and authority and that's what creates a little bit of this almost contradiction for us and the tension here that the son of man came and if they were to fill in the blank, they would say, to reclaim David's throne. Not at this point. That's future and that will be true. The son of man came to be a deacon. Time out, hold on a second. Don't you possess all glory, isn't all honor yours, all power? You created the universe, hung the stars like chandeliers. Don't you love that line from that song we sang earlier? You are all that and and, and you came to just serve? Jesus says, absolutely. Human nature is to put our needs and wants first. And that's what all 12 disciples have been doing at this very moment. But it's not what Jesus has ever done. That's why I say it's ironic that Jesus, just before this, was actually asking James and John the question, what is it you want me to do for you? They should be the ones asking the king, what is it you want us to do for you? Here he, he, and, and think of the ways he served through his, his life to this point. He's healed hundreds of people. He's fed thousands of Jews and Gentiles alike. He's preached and taught and prayed through the night. He's wearied himself in service to the 12, to the 70, and to hundreds and thousands more. He's, pres- he's battled the devil alone in the wilderness in service to us all. And he's presently on a road to unimaginable imaginable suffering and certain death in order that self-serving, self-promoting, sin-burdened disciples and people like you and me in this present day might be delivered. He is the servant king. And then he says to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, he uses terminology here that makes reference to the payment that is necessary for either a captive or a slave to be released. James and John see themselves as worthy candidates for the seats of honor next to Jesus, but they are actually prisoners who first need a ransom payment to be made for their sins. And what an awful price will be required on that coming Friday for the king who will ransom sinners. He's headed to Jerusalem to pay that ransom, not out of the small treasury that Judas oversees, but out of his veins and out of his heart. And the deep wounds through which his very life will hemorrhage away on Friday will be the payment for all our sins because he came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's not just these 12 who are in front of him, but it is the generation that he served in the days of his incarnation. It is the generations that span all the way back to Noah and all the way forward through our present generation to the very last generation on planet Earth. This is the serving, saving king. And they think the trip to Jerusalem will culminate in crowns of glory and seats of honor, but the king knows it is a crown of thorns that awaits him and a cross of suffering and a tomb where his dead body will be placed before he rises again. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Our son Luke sent us a song a few weeks ago just to encourage and strengthen our hearts as we walk a unexpected and difficult road. And I had not heard it prior to his sharing of it with us, but there's a line that just really has captivated the imagination of my heart. And that line says, there is no other seated at the Father's right hand. And he's scarred with the proof of what he chose to lose. So grace was ours to gain. What a king. And you know, like all of us, James and John are ambitious for something that is understandable. But in many ways, the king is saying here at this point, hey, before you sit in glory, learn to serve. And before you lay out plans for tomorrow or the next day or all eternity, come with me to the cross. Not that those disciples or you and I would die for our sins on the cross, but just go with him and watch him pay the ransom. And not only watch him pay the ransom, but receive the power of that shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the glorious cleansing and purification of your guilt that has long carried the weight of sin and shame. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus will share his glory one day, but he will not personally bypass the cross, and he will not allow his disciples to bypass the cross to enjoy the glory that's on the other side. It's absolutely essential and it's absolutely essential for you and me. That's what makes King Jesus the greatest among all. Do you know this king who saves? Do you know him? That's what this week is about. And do you serve the king who has served you and thousands of others? It's easy to get caught up in the struggle for power that characterizes so much of our world today. I wonder if you are more concerned at this moment about exercising your control over your life or over the people who might be around you in a family setting or even in the workplace, even in ministry. More concerned about exercising authority over those nearest you. Or do you aspire to the kind of greatness that Jesus teaches and models? Part of the reason we read to the end of the chapter, and I would love to take the time, but I won't, to just preach through the whole interaction with Bartimaeus. He's actually showing the disciples, just go spend a little time this afternoon and, and read through that. He actually turns around after giving this instruction to the disciples and shows them exactly what he has in mind when he says, you must be the servant of all. And, and, and divinely positioned on the, on the side of the road is a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And, and Jesus hears his cry. And when other people would reject him, Jesus hears and says, call him to me. And then he says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Same question he asked the disciples. You see, he's showing them like how he, normal people would just walk right by this guy. It's what you and I do at the interchanges here when homeless people are standing you know, at, at the side. But Jesus calls this man, asks him a question, and he says that I might receive my sight. He says, your faith has made you well. And then there's an interesting little play on words. Not play on words, but um, just pay attention to how Jesus then says, go your way. But then Mark records that after Bartimaeus is healed, he follows Jesus in the way. And you know, it's a reminder to us that Jesus never heals you and me of physical affliction or sin, it, just in order that we might go our way. Ultimately, 
He, he rescues us and saves us so that we would walk in his way, the way. And his call on us, because of what he will do on Friday, if I can put it in present terms, is to aspire to the kind of greatness that he, that he teaches and models for us. If you don't get the first part of this, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you and paid the ultimate cost, you'll never actually find the kind of motivation you need to serve people in the sacrificial way that Jesus is really talking about here. You'll you'll throw out token acts of love and service, but but you'll never really go to the depths that Jesus is calling us to here, where it costs you something to serve others, where you actually experience a loss in order that they might be lifted up. But that's the way of the king. Men, are you serving the people around you? Some of you are husbands. When was the last time you said with all sincerity to your spouse, what would you like for me to do for you? There used to be an old way of thinking, oh, there's, there's man's work and there's woman's work, and the two never meet. Hey, newsflash, there's just work. And yeah, some of it we're better at than a spouse might be, but at the end of the day, the work has to be done. A lot of students here, many ages, young people. When was the last time you said to a parent or a teacher, what would you like for me to do for you? How can I serve try that this afternoon and have a cool rag nearby so that after your mom falls to the floor fainting (laughs) you know you can apply that cold compress and then revive her and say no mom seriously I meant it would you like for me to set the table can I do the dishes you know what empowers you to do that because Jesus served you to the place where he died I wonder what kind of marriages and households and workplaces Churches and schools would we have if everybody walked into uh, moments like these and just says, first of all, Lord, what, what do you want me to do in this place today? And then we begin like one, one-to-one saying, what can I do for you today? And many of you really are already walking that path, and I, I'm so thankful. I mean, it gave me great joy to think through some specific things of, of how, even personally, we've been on the receiving end of that, that type of sacrificial, loving care so I, I know it's moving you know in and out one to another here but there's always room for growth right so I, w- I was thinking in, in conclusion perhaps we ought to meditate on this and first of all find the great joy that comes from knowing the ransom has been paid you, you don't need to worry that you will be hung on a cross this week and the wrath of God poured out on you crushing you because that's what Jesus did for you and his call upon you and me to serve as he himself has served is actually empowered by that cross. And that's what gives us joy to rise each morning and we could begin each day by saying, good morning, King Jesus. Thank you for serving me and ransoming me. What is it you want me to do for you today? And then go do it. With great joy, this is our King. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you. And as we do, we repent of self-worship. We're so full of ambition for our own glory that we know it grieves you, it quenches the Holy Spirit, and it even pains those who are around us. Forgive us and have mercy. Forgive us for crafting and creating our own agenda, sometimes even under the name of gospel ministry, Christian parenting, 
discipleship and the reality is we, we are just ambitious for self. Have mercy on us. We're as blind to those corrupting sins within our souls as Bartimaeus was to the world he lived in. But how thankful we are that the same mercy that overflowed from your heart and, and accomplished his healing is the mercy that flows over our sinful hearts and you are so eager, willing to forgive all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether it be the hidden sinful ambitions, uh, secret sins of our hearts or even the open uh, acts and words of rebellion that we have committed, God in heaven, have mercy on us this morning. Heal our hearts, heal our minds and raise us up that we like all faithful disciples in every generation, may follow you in the way. How I thank you for gospel hope. I thank you for those who long ago submitted themselves to your kingship and authority and who really do rise, and maybe not with these specific words, but rise each morning saying, what is your will? Show me, O God and King. And though they do not serve perfectly, they have served sacrificially and willingly served faithfully continue to bless them and empower them because some are are absolutely spent at this point and feel like there is nothing left in the reserve tanks that as much as they long to serve you they just don't feel they have the strength supply it and perfect your strength through this moment of weakness i pray for the men in this church especially that you would give them strength and courage to serve and sacrifice in the way that Jesus has served and sacrificed for us. May it be clear by the way we live our lives in households and workplaces, as we volunteer our time, there are some men here who coach their kids' sports teams and there are some who who volunteer their time at a local school or through their workplace. There are countless ways in which the men of this church are out and about. Oh, Spirit of God, empower them from on high that their lives and their words may just breathe out the power of this king and give them grace to love and serve even when it is difficult. I pray for our ladies, asking that you would fill them afresh with your spirit that they would be in awe, first of all, that you are the king who loved them to the end, who laid down his life, that they might be ransomed from all sin, who served them, that they might be positioned to serve others. Father, here at the beginning of Holy Week, a week that a good part of the world will talk and even rearrange schedules about the last days leading up to the cross, would you cause the the power of Christ to rule our hearts and set our agendas and take us to the cross? As the old hymn says, Jesus, keep us near the cross. For there a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. So keep us there. I thank you for this time together this morning and we have so much to be thankful for and as we praise you again in song and as we return this evening to praise you and celebrate your goodness to us, 
Oh, how I ask, Spirit of God, that you would guard our hearts from the temptations of the evil one, from the discouragement uh, that he would bring to us. Guard us and keep us by your great power that we may enjoy all the blessings that flow from our Savior through the cross to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.